it was one of those moments that no one ever wants to have and I never thought I would have and I just fell onto a table in this little tea house and started sobbing and shaking and realized that I had put myself in a situation that I didn't know if I was going to get out of. I really almost feared for my life. That was Mark Timmons and this is episode 106 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today we are talking with Mark Timmons, a 62-year-old retired high school teacher from Brandon, Manitoba. He started his running journey at age 50, when most people start thinking about retirement. He started with short fitness runs, gradually building up his distance to 10K, half marathons, and then full marathons. After running the Boston Marathon in 2012, Mark discovered trail running and soon found himself completely immersed in trail running culture. His passion for trails and mountain running has taken him all over North America, Nepal, Iceland, and Norway. It was an experience he had while running the Mount Everest Extreme Ultra in Nepal that inspired him to start writing, eventually resulting in the publication of his book, Man on the Run. The book is a collection of stories journaling the experiences Mark has had during an unforgettable decade in pursuit of the extraordinary. Mark is a masterful storyteller, and we know you will enjoy this hour as much as we did. So Mark, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. Carolyn and I are really interested to chat with you today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It's nice to meet neat. It's nice to meet both of you, even if it is just through a video screen. But I look forward to seeing you both in person at a race sometime. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we didn't actually get a chance to officially meet, but I did see you in person at the Lost Souls Ultra um, brunch that we had a mm-hmm. few weeks ago. Yeah. And I had the privilege of hearing you speak there. You were the keynote kind of speaker. And um, I was so intrigued by by some of the stories you told and some of the experiences that you shared that I immediately put your name in my little list that I have in my phone of potential podcast guests and invited you on the show. So here yeah. we are. Why don't you um, start us off by just giving us a little bit more um, background. Who is Mark Timmis? Where do you live? What do you do? Yeah. Well, I'm based in Brandon, Manitoba. I've lived here for most of my adult life. Um, married to my wife, Sharon, who's a musician in town and a voice professor at Brandon University. I'm a retired high school science teacher. I've been teaching, had been teaching for 33 years, mostly in Brandon, but a couple of other places in Manitoba. Retired for five years, uh, grew up in small town Manitoba, Minnedosa, about 30 minutes out of Brandon. And yeah, so southwestern Manitoba has been my home pretty much my whole life. I spent a little bit of time playing hockey in Saskatchewan when I was uh, a teenager, but certainly Brandon is my home. Well, very cool. And I'm, I keep saying relatively new to Winnipeg. I've been here for four years now. So we've been to Brandon a couple of times, but it is a place that keeps coming up like through some of our podcast guests and and races. Like I know that some of the the really awesome trail races happen out there in the Brandon Hills. So it's definitely somewhere that I want to check out a little bit more, but um, that sort of segues us into your running. I understand that you didn't take up running until you were almost 50. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I certainly got into the sport late. So yeah, I I never was a runner. I mean, I was an athlete when I was young. I was a hockey player. And, you know, through my late teenage years, kind of developed a skill set. And there were some opportunities for me to maybe pursue hockey as a career. And I, I had some some uh some openings kind of offered to me but um i let them slide you know based on youth and misguided intentions and so i made some mistakes when i was young and and hockey kind of went in a different direction so you know by the time i was 20 um you know i still had that kind of fire burning in me that i needed to do something competitive and then i was always a bit bummed out that i kind of dropped the hockey ball when i had a chance to pursue it so uh, for the next several decades, um, I just kind of floundered in an athletic world. I mean, I was happy with my life and, and stayed active to a certain degree. But then I got back into playing hockey as a young adult and was re-energized by it and probably got better. My skill set got better as a hockey player and 
And even though I was never in a competitive league, it was always competitive to me. You know, every night I went out to play hockey, it was like, this is the best I've ever played and I'm going to do better than I did the night before. So that kind of um, reignited the fire in me, that competitive edge that I lost as a late teenager. And um, But then as I was getting close to 50, I suffered an injury in a hockey game and almost overnight that ended. So Again, there was this void in my life that I was so unhappy that during the middle of my life, as I was getting older, that I was probably more athletic and more competitive than I have ever been. And then suddenly it was gone. So, um, yeah. So as I approached, I I started just kind of doing some little trots around uh, Brandon. And eventually, I think I did a 5K run in a stretch. And as most runners know, right, you start short and then kind of 5K is your first Mm -hmm. goal. You never think you can do 5K. But um, yeah, I found that I could run five kilometers on the street. And then I thought, well, this isn't so bad. You know, maybe I'll just keep running in place of hockey to stay fit. And and then uh, fairly quickly after that, I realized that my shelf life was pretty short at the age I was at. So if I'm going to try this out, I better push myself a little bit harder. And then over a fairly short period of time, maybe over a two-year period, I was able to go from never running a mile in my life pretty much to doing some fairly rigorous marathon training and, and got lucky to, to meet Boston qualifying and ran Boston. And so I, I kind of reached my marathon goal within a couple of years of starting running. And, and that, of course, kind of brought back that competitiveness in me. And as we all know, competition and running, unless you're elite, it's all about competing with yourself, right? And so it was exciting for me to find this new sport that I could set my own level of competition. It wasn't based on a score. It wasn't based on teammates. It was all about, you know, the personal goals I could set for myself. And so it was very fulfilling to find running late in life. And so it it was uh, a profound experience for me that this is something I'd never realized could enter my life when I was younger. So I was happy it came when it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in many ways, like, I mean, running and hockey are so totally different, right? Like one's an individual sport and one's a team sport and and they are very different in terms of obviously um, the the movements and whatnot. But um, what I find interesting about your story is the overlap of kind of like if you really drill down to what you loved about both, it was that sense of progress and improvement and, and getting better and challenging yourself and having that outlet, that athletic outlet in your life. So like you said, you you got yourself fairly quickly to the Boston Marathon and you ended up running Boston in 2012. Is that right? Yeah, and that, yeah. if I recall, was like the hottest year ever, wasn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your experience in Boston that year. Yeah, it was exceptional. I mean, uh, going there, I don't think there was a forecast for the kind of heat that we that we eventually got. But the day before the race, you started hearing, you know, rumblings from other competitors that perhaps they were going to cancel the race. And I remember we went to a Boston Red Sox game the afternoon before we went and checked in at the expo and then went to a Red Sox game the day before the race. And we happened to be sitting around a bunch of marathon runners and, and up and down the aisle in the seats, there was just continuous chatter that wasn't focused on the baseball game. It was about (laughs) the weather tomorrow. And and one after one, people were saying, yeah, it's either going to be canceled or I'm going to pull out, you know, I'm not going to do this. It was just projected to be so hot. And, and uh, I think we got messages the night before that said, we're not going to cancel it, but in a rare kind of move, they will allow deferrals for the next year, which Boston just doesn't do. And, you know, if you don't go one year, you're, you don't, you have to reapply. So they were advising people to take the deferral option because it was going to be so hot. They, they couldn't guarantee, you know, the health and safety of people on the course because of the expected heat, but. But I got up that next morning and there was another runner in the hotel with me and we were down in the breakfast room at about 4 a.m. And we just basically made the decision then that said, well, let's do it because both of us were from, you know, we were pretty far away. So we thought this Mm -hmm. is our one chance. I'm probably not going to come back and do this again. So, so we decided to go. And of course, early morning, New England, it was beautiful. And we were thinking, you know, what's all the hype about? This isn't going to be hot. It's perfect (laughs) weather, right? But if you've been to Boston the way the course runs, it it starts, I guess, 26.2 miles uh, west of downtown Boston. And then you run way, you run east all the way into the city center. So it's a one-way course. And by the time you start for my wave, the elite runners go early. So I didn't start till late morning. 
So the sun was up and it was beating down on one side of my face because you're running one direction. So the heat started to build by the time I had started my race. So it was probably 32, 33 degrees with bright sunshine the entire way and no wind. And I mean, that's not unusual weather for prairie people, but when you're in a race and you're trying to push hard, you know, you're in Boston, you don't want to just kind of trot along. You want to push as hard as you can. So yeah, it, it was pretty brutal, but um, and it's common for prairie people in July and August, but not yes. not in April, right? Exactly. Like there's been no lead up that makes you acclimatize to that kind of heat in yeah, April. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty it was pretty exceptional, but uh, it was also fascinating because you know I'd heard stories about Boston that you know the the streets are lined with fans and it's it's they're as passionate as you get anywhere. So as we were running through some of these college towns and areas, and you had all kinds of people out there with water guns and spray guns, typical thing you see on a marathon. And so it was kind of fascinating, but it got so hot that I was uh, to the point where I thought I wasn't going to make it. And I remember though, on that year, I think the, the, at that time world record holder was in the field and he was trying for a world record and he had to pull out at mile 13 or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's so not hot, world record so. type no. of day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you think, well, Hey, you know, if the world record holder is pulling out and I can finish, well, you know, that makes me at least better than the world record holder. In that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I remember pulling into, uh, there was a, a a porta potty at the base of Heartbreak Hill, you know, this infamous hill about, I think it's about 20 miles into the course, right? And it's the, pretty much the one uphill in the whole course. And I, I sat in this porta potty for about 10 minutes, which is an unpleasant pace, place to be during races, as you know. Um, but I just couldn't get out. It was so cool in there. It was dark and cool. And I mean, it was kind of a repulsive place to, to take a rest, but I thought I have to finish, have to finish, have to finish. And I mean, this could lead to another story later on, but I guess I'll throw it in here now. And um, so my my primary reason for finishing Boston wasn't to finish Boston. It was because um, my wife, Sharon, was there as well. So girlfriend Sharon at the time, and she was near the finish line. So the, the whole Boston experience, it's massive. Like you get thousands and thousands and thousands of people waiting at the finish line. So she went there that morning at i think about 7 a.m uh, my race started at 10 30 so she found a spot to stand near the finish line at seven in the morning knowing that i wasn't even going to start for three and a half hours so if i was looking at wow. a three to four hour race she was going to be standing in this one spot for probably at least seven hours in the middle of the day <laughs> around thousands and thousands and thousands of people and she couldn't leave right because if she left to take a water break or a pee break then someone would take her spot and she would you know what's the point mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so i knew she was going to be at the finish line and that i would hopefully try to find her so as i came around the last corner and i could see the finish line and then you know tens of thousands of people and police lying in the streets and i thought there's no hope at all that i'm going to see her and that's that was my goal of finishing, not to cross the finish line, but to see her at the end. And mm. so amazingly enough, I found her. So, um, you know, I broke through the police barricade and went over and I'd just come out of this stinky outhouse and I'm covered in sweat and Gatorade and everything else you can imagine. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, so it was that point. Uh, and, and she's, you know, what are you doing here? You know, get to the finish line. It's a hundred yards away. And I said, well, first of all, I have to ask you to marry me. Right. So, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> So that was my ultimate goal in finishing Boston is that I thought uh, Sharon had entered my life right when running entered my life. So we were on this parallel track of this, this passion between us and running. And she was an amateur runner and just getting into it as well. And, and she was uh, the most dedicated, enthusiastic supporter of me. So you know, I knew that she is standing in this spot for seven and a half hours waiting oh for my. me to, to make that corner down Boylston Street, you know, the famous finish of Boston. And I thought, this is the opportunity, right? So, I mean, yeah. those, those are kind of quirky, cheesy moments that you hear about, right? Where people kind of set these artificial stages for proposals. But it was kind of a spontaneous thing. I knew that if, if I could find her in the crowd, I would do that. So... So yeah, did you so run I, the whole way with a ring? It, well, there was no ring. That's the only okay, thing. Okay. I, I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to actually get down on a knee and give her a ring. I just thought I'm yep. going to just rub my sweat all over you and say, you know, <laughs> will you marry me? And uh, yeah, so she was a bit That's shocked. And, yeah. 
so uh, because of that, of course, I lost three minutes off my finishing time. So, you know, <laughs> plus the ten that you spent in the porta potty. <laughs> That's right, too. Yeah. So it was all worth it. So I, I certainly don't look back at Boston as one of my finest running events, but it was yeah. my finest running event. Absolutely, so, so special. And I have to think. So you you had maybe slightly entertain the possibility of deferring to the next year because of yeah. the heat, right? Yeah. And then the next year, if I'm correct, yeah. is, was the bombing, That's right? right? And yeah. and that was right near the finish line. And so it was, was. it that long ago? Yeah. yeah 2013. Yeah. So when that happened, did you, you, you two must've, mm-hmm. I mean, that was just worldwide news. Like did, yeah. you must've been like, holy, that could have been us. Well, it, it was kind of, um, yeah, it was horrifying to see that happen. And then, when you look at the video and realize that where those bombs were going off was right where Sharon was standing. Right. Mm-hmm, so yeah. wow. of course you can make up all these, these crazy yeah. things like what if, right. To, you know, you hear of awful things that happen and you say, well, what if I had been on that plane or I'd been in that car, or I'd been sure. in that terrible yeah. storm, but, yeah. but oddly enough, it's not the first time stuff like that has happened. And, um, you know, well, I can talk a little bit in mysterious yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, when yeah. I was in Nepal a few years after that, um, yeah, there was like tragic earthquakes and avalanches on both of the year that I was there two weeks before me and then the following year. So it seems like some tragic events have unfortunately kind of um, been on either side of my time at a particular racing event. So I'm hoping mm. that that kind of stuff never happens again. So. Yeah. yeah. So Boston wow. was a pretty amazing experience for sure. It sounds like it. Yeah. Very memorable to say the least. Mm-hmm. So you then, after Boston, what happened then? Where did your running journey lead you after yeah. that? Well, oddly enough, when I kind of looked at my kind of career to running transition that I wanted to stay competitive and, and what I found intriguing about marathon training and running is that um, to me, I only... Uh, gain success if I was faster than the previous race, which meant that training was always time-based, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, Caroline is a road runner and Kim, I'm not sure how much road running you've done, but as a road runner, you have to train really hard, right? You have to train yeah. super hard because you're never really happy with anything less than your personal best, right? You have to have a personal record with every race. So I started to find that that was getting a bit too onerous on me that I was getting tired of training for speed, even though I wasn't a fast runner, you always want to try and get faster. So it was, I don't know, my, my training routine was getting too sophisticated almost and too regimented that I was losing interest in that. It was, it was not much fun anymore. And I had done all the marathon races I wanted. So out in Brandon, I, I ended up following a biker friend of mine out onto the trails in Brandon and he would bike and I would run. And then I, I just, almost immediately got hooked and said, this is really what I should be doing because in trail running, I found right away that there was, there was no time reference for me. I had no idea how fast I should or shouldn't be going. And so it was very kind of um, refreshing for me to run without a clock. And so from that moment on, I, I almost again overnight just dropped marathon running entirely and focused on trail running. And back then this was now, yeah, when I was turning 50, so 12 years ago, and there was nothing in the trail running world back then. I was, I was a sole runner. I was the only person out in Brandon running that I knew of. And, and, uh, there was, there was no media coverage of trail running. Um, you know, there were a couple of books written that got me connected to running, but it was a new sport for me. And it was, um, it was what I needed at the time because I was almost ready to fall off the running wagon and try something different. So then trail running came into my life and it's never left. And um, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, back 10, yeah, even 10 years ago, that's roughly when I started trail running mm-hmm. competitively, at least. And there wasn't much out there. And even when I moved to Manitoba in 2015, it was like you could count, you know, maybe 20 people that you knew that did the trail ran. Yeah. Um, but I do know that you have since then, you know, experienced a lot of different races and ran in a lot of amazing places. And I'm so excited to hear some of your stories. But um, why don't you just give us some highlights of both your local kind of Manitoba race experiences mm-hmm. and then maybe lead us into some of your yeah. international experiences. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been really lucky that 
I've stayed healthy, first of all, over the last 10 mm-hmm. years, because as you get to this point in your life, I mean, it's pretty easy to suffer injuries that can kind of stop you in your tracks. So I've been quite fortunate, which is part of the reason why I transitioned away from marathon training is that I started, I started to accumulate those repetitive marathon injuries that maybe we've all suffered from. But in trail running, the variation of trail running kind of made me healthier than ever because I wasn't having that same continuous pounding from that repeated cadence on pavement. So yeah. because I was healthy through my 50s, uh, I was able to enjoy, tra- enjoy trail running more. So I started to pursue more exciting events. And what's beautiful about trail running is every course is different. Unlike a city marathon where you can go to great cities and experience the city culture, but once you're on a race course, one marathon isn't a whole lot different from another one, but in trail running, every race is completely different. The trails vary from one place to another. So uh, in Manitoba, of course, like you, Kim, you probably would have started with Duane's races out in Spruce Woods, mm-hmm. the Spruce Woods Ultra, mm-hmm. which was the only race at that time. And yep. yeah, my first trail race was there. And I think there were six of us who did a 50 yeah. mile race yeah. and, and that's it. You know, and you look at Christian's race last week or two weeks ago and he had 300 in Brandon. Yeah, right? So exactly. So yeah. it's amazing. So in Manitoba, that was the only race at the time. Was and the Lemming local... loop was that Lemming kind of loop. going? Sure. Yeah. 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 So there was a couple of things races. that yeah. Dwayne was doing. Right. And yeah. so Spruce Woods was the only trail run I did, but, um, but it was around that time that I found this book um, that maybe you've read. I mean, his famous book, that Born to Run book by Chris yeah, McDougall. Where, <laughs> so when I read about that, I was, yeah, I was captivated by that whole experience. So um, I think it was the year, my Boston year was when I was reading it. So I said, I, I got to get to Leadville, Colorado. And so I think that summer, uh, Sharon and I went down to Leadville. I, I wasn't in the race, but there was a, a marathon at the time. So I thought I'm going to enter this trail marathon. So it was my first experience into mountain trail running in Leadville. I mean, that's the epicenter High of trail altitude. running, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was a wake up for sure that I thought going from running in Manitoba trails to running mountain trails was something I needed to experience. And, you know, why not go for the big one, right? Leadville. And right. So it, it was, um, yeah, it was empowering because when you get there, you see this whole different culture of, uh, of these mountain bandits and they were just an amazing group of athletes and to be out there on the mountain with them and to experience what it was like to be on top of a mountain running at, you know, 13,000 feet. Um, yeah, that got me hooked on not just trail running, but mountain running. So because I had that one experience that my, uh, focus shifted entirely away from, trail running in general to mountain running. Um, yeah. So I just started scanning the globe saying, where am I going to go next? And at that point, now this was maybe the mid 2000s. So there started to be more trail races in the West out in the mm-hmm. Rocky mountains mm-hmm. and further. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was able to, uh, start running in a couple of those events out West Squamish 50. I think Squamish mm-hmm. 50 was my first kind of, kind of big Canadian mountain run. But it was shortly after that, that I read an article about a mountain race in Nepal at Mount Everest. And there was a Canadian woman, she was the first Canadian to run this event. It was a marathon that you, you start at base camp at Mount Everest, and then basically run a marathon back down to a little village partway down the hill. And I thought, you know, I've always been a big fan of, of Everest stories. I've read all the books and thought, you know, someday I, I would love to go and do the typical Mount Everest trek. And then I stumbled across this article and then I started doing some research and I found out that this uh, Everest experience was actually an ultra marathon, a 60K ultra that was pretty much a, a three week excursion in the, in the Nepalese Himalayan mountains. So, yeah, I didn't waste any time, you know, because I was in my mid fifties, I thought I'm doing this while I can. So, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I jumped on board. I talked to Sharon and said, can you live without me for a month? And, you know, so I, I was still teaching at the time. So I went to my school board and begged and begged and begged several times because I was rejected. And because this was in May, they, they, they run this race on the anniversary of the first summit of Everest, which is May 29th, which is prime season for high school teachers because you're getting kids ready for exams. So they said, no, you can't go. You know, I says, I'm not that valuable. I'm really not, you know, anyone can come (laughs) in and take my place. Please let me go. You know, this is, I can only do this on May 29th. I can't do it any other time. So Thankfully, I got some support and 
yeah, so I thought this is the this is the big one, right? If I'm gonna do this trail running mountain experience, I better do it while I'm healthy. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I popped over to to Nepal for three weeks and had this life changing experience over in in Mount Everest. So, which I could talk about for hours, which was the genesis of the book. So. Yeah, well, that's, again, the perfect segue um, yeah. to, to you have written a book. Would love yeah. to hear kind of what led you to decide to write a book. What's it called? Tell the listener where they can, uh, they can purchase it and what to expect inside. Okay, well, the book is called Man on the Run, and it's a collection of trail running stories from Manitoba to Mount Everest. And it's uh, just a small paperback, and I've thrown in a whole bunch of my race photos in there and uh, just collected stories from pretty much everywhere I've been running throughout the world and um, crafted them in such a way that they aren't just running stories, that they're more human experience stories. Uh, you know, there's a ton of books out there now about uh, running from start to finish and all the struggles that runners face. And I certainly threw some of that into the book, but my focus was more on trying to make connections with all the people and the experiences I had running these races, not so much the races themselves. So that's the book now. And it's, it's been out now for a year and I, I don't really push it that much. I, I sell it in uh, a few local bookstores, A&L cycle and Brandon has been great to me. They, they got me started publishing this thing that they provided some financial support. So I've got a strong allegiance to them. So first thing I always say to people is if you want to buy the book, please go to A&L and Brandon and support them. They are, they are they go above and beyond in supporting local athletics and healthy lifestyles. So um, I am grateful to them, Cam and Colleen and the family there. And then it's available in Winnipeg, uh, City Park Runners. Jonathan has been great as well. Wilderness Supply. Uh, I've been really lucky to to get some independent running stores throughout Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC that have taken the book. So. I, I feel very good that it's out there in the world physically. You know, you can drive from here to Vancouver Island and stop in running stores. And there's my little book sitting on the shelf in a lot of these stores. So I'm proud of that. So I've heard authors say that, uh, you know, to produce a book, it's like birthing a baby or something yeah. like it's a huge process. So yeah. tell us a little bit about what that journey was like for you. Well, it all started from my experience in Nepal and Mount Everest and, and I can get in some of the specifics of that. But when I returned from Everest, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a writer at all. I really am not. I'm a, a science teacher and I don't document anything unless it's a math equation or a chemical formula. So I didn't record anything when I was in Everest, but uh, when I, other than video, I, I had my GoPro and I recorded pretty much everything on video. I didn't journal anything, but I had some of these life-changing experiences over there that when I returned home, I thought I need to translate the videos into writing. And I just started writing myself a personal diary, a journal pretty much. And, and that's all it was ever intended to be just to have a second set of facts. Cause if I ever lost these videos, then I would be heartbroken. So I, I basically, it was my backup, right? It was my old fashioned pen and paper backup to my videos that I collected. So but then, you know, I, I started to craft it, as I said earlier, I didn't want any of my stories to be just about running. I wanted it to be about the human experience. And that's what my experience in Nepal was all about. So, so I decided to kind of write it as a short story. And, and it was uh, kind of for my mother who I'd lost my father a while before and she was alone and <clears throat> I wanted to do something for her. So I, I took this one story about Nepal and Mount Everest and I made it look like a little book. And she was so proud of me. And it was the furthest thing from a book. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> like a child had written it, right? I mean, I didn't put a whole lot of effort into it. But she was so proud. And she would always call it a book. And she would lay it on her table. And then it would come over. And she was, look at what my son did. He wrote a book. And I was, Mom, it's not a book. I mean, it's, look, it's, it's like a high school project. It's a pamphlet. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's a pamphlet, right? It's like a travel pamphlet. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but after that, you know, and I started doing some other races and then, uh, as I was pro, uh, approaching retirement in 2017, I thought, you know, I'm still healthy. I'm still passionate about this experience. Um, so I thought I'm going to search the world and, and give myself a retirement gift. And that retirement gift is going to be find the most unique mountain running event anywhere in the world and convince Sharon that, uh, the summer I retire, let's go and do it. So <laughs> So I've, 
I found the race, right? And it was Killian Jornet's race in Norway. And of course, we all know Killian. I love Killian. I worship him. And I realized that he actually had his own race in northern Norway up on the northern tip above the Arctic Circle. It's part of the European sky running circuit. It's called the Tromsø Sky Race. So I thought, that's it. I'm in that. Right. That's that's the ultimate experience. You know, I had Nepal, I had Mount Everest. Now I need the most challenging race that the planet offers. So so I registered for that and then uh, realized that I'm way out of my league. Right. Because this was a true mountain race. This was for kind of born and raised real mountain men and women because it was not a running event. It was a mountain climbing, scrambling mm -hmm. kind of don't die mm -hmm. event. So. So I got there and I did that and I did a race in Iceland. And then I thought, you know, here's some stories along with some of my North American stories. I thought I better keep doing the same thing and putting these instead of just videos, write them out in little stories. And then, uh, yeah, the COVID years, I thought maybe I can put them together as a book. And I, I reluctantly went to my wife, Sharon, and said, is this a stupid idea? You know, really? I mean, real authors write books. I, I'm not an author at all. I'm not a writer. I says, do you think I can do this? And she was, of course you can do it, you know? And I had so I was fortunate to have a running friend who's a professional editor and a brother-in-law who's a professional writer and they helped me. And yeah. And then through their help, it became more than just a few stories. It, it became a cohesive book that kind of had a theme running through it. And, and it basically, uh, it, it looks at some of the most memorable experiences I've had, not just in terms of athleticism, but, you know, those kind of empowering lifelong personal experiences that you have while you're out running. And the one that of course is most significant is my, my Everest experience. And I feel uh, if you can give me a few minutes, I'll maybe talk about why that was so important 100%. to me. We were in a very small group. There was myself and, um, five other people, two Brazilian friends and three from New Zealand. There were two married couples and then one single um, young woman who, uh, as you may know, ultimately became now the world famous Ruth Croft, who is who just won Western mm -hmm. States and is probably mm -hmm. the the top uh, female trail runner in the world right now. So this is before she got into real serious trail running. So we were there together. So I met Ruth. Um, back in 2014 and we spent you, you spend two weeks basically walking from the start of the trek up to base camp so it's a 60 kilometer walk and you take two weeks to do that and then you spend two nights at Everest base camp and then you basically run down back to the start line so that's the way the race is run but I don't know if you've ever hiked in, in high elevation mountains. I mean, it's pretty difficult to acclimatize, especially when you're up at 17 and 18,000 feet. So it's a very slow process getting up there. And by the time you get to Everest Base Camp after two weeks, you're pretty tired or fatigued. You haven't eaten well. You haven't drank much. You haven't slept very much. So it's, it's the furthest thing from kind of pre-race routine that you would normally expect. You know, there was no real tapering. There was no carb loading. There was none of that. You were just... By the time we got there, we were exhausted. And then at Everest Base Camp on this particular day, um, we had a snowstorm of the ages. They, they don't get heavy snow up there on May 29th. And we got one of the worst snowfalls in history at Everest Base Camp. And this is two weeks after they had a horrendous avalanche just above Everest Base Camp and killed, I think, something like 20 people. I, I may have my numbers oh my. wrong, but there was a, a tragic avalanche um, just above Everest Base Camp two weeks before our race and all the climbing expeditions were canceled so we were on the mountain alone but we were now at base camp in another snowstorm that was creating avalanche conditions all around us so so we were covered in three feet of snow overnight and we were in tents and our race directors who had been on the mountain two weeks earlier during this tragedy they said we have to get out of here you know, this is the same conditions that killed my friends two weeks earlier. So we are not staying here another night. We have to leave now or else we are in danger. So we were uh, hauled out of our tents early in the morning, like three feet of snow everywhere. You can't see anything. And uh, Everest Base Camp is full of boulders and there's trip hazards everywhere. And now everything's covered in snow and everyone's cold and wet and tired and so we not only had to depart, but we had to carry everything with us. So normally we would have a group of Sherpas and porters who would carry everything, 
but because everyone had to evacuate on this morning as fast as we could, all of us runners had to dig out our tents. We had to pack everything on our backs. And then we had to walk about seven kilometers out of this avalanche zone to start the race at a small village called Gorakshep, um, which was out of the avalanche danger. So, so by the time we got to the night before the race, it was uh, like the walking wounded. We were all pretty much out of our element. Everyone was exhausted and beat up. And, and then we had a 60 kilometer race to run at 17,000 feet the next day in three mm. feet of snow. Mm. So cut to the, the point of the story is about halfway through the race and I was alone. And when I got halfway through the race, there was a young Nepalese boy. I called him a boy. He seemed like no more than a teenager. And he started running with me. And I was dressed in full mountain gear. I mean, I had several layers of clothing. I had my hydration vest. I had a couple of toques on, sunglasses. I had my GoPro on my vest. I had trekking poles. I mean, I was set for an excursion in the mountains and he simply had on a windbreaker, some tennis shoes, and he carried an umbrella with him. That was it. And he just started running with me and he didn't speak English. And I was, you know, kind of saying, you know, go away from me. I'm doing this myself. This is my kind of ultimate personal experience to run in Mount Everest. And he wouldn't leave me alone. He stayed with me. And and when you can't speak to someone, it was we were just hand gesturing, basically. And I couldn't understand why he was staying with me. But he never left my side. And we eventually got to another aid station where there was uh, some people we had met the day before. And then we got talking to this kid who I, at the time I called him Sherpa boy because he was just a, he seemed like a teenager. He seemed like that, that typical Sherpa Himalayan nomad. And I eventually got through to him that I don't want you with me. First of all, I appreciate you, but you must go back to wherever you belong, which is nowhere. He was just a mountain nomad, right? And, and he said through uh, this other person, we got some words out of him. And he said the finish line, the name of the finish line. And it became very clear that he was instructed by the race organizers to stay with me to the finish because they had had some issues the year before with people getting lost in the mountains and some potential tragic situations. So for this year, they said everyone who's running solo would have a porter with them. And I happened to get this, this young man and I didn't know this. And so finally he, he communicated that he was going to stay with me. So, so the, the book, started from my experience. So I spent about four hours in the Himalayan mountains in snowstorms, half blind because uh, the sun was so bright, I couldn't see anymore. And this kid stayed with me and really looked after me. He would, with his umbrella, he would tap me with his umbrella on the downward side of the mountain to keep me from going over the cliff, basically. And he would push his body against me and and he mm. just stayed with me. And, and he, he the only words he would say were, this way, sir, slowly, sir. Those were the only English words he knew. And we formed this incredible, strong relationship out of no words at all that I started to rely on him for my safety. And he recognized that his role in life was to keep me safe. So we, we made our way to this little completely isolated tea house way up on the side of a mountain in the Himalayan mountains. And it was snowing and it was getting dark and I just collapsed. And it was one of those moments that no one ever wants to have. And I never thought I would have, but I basically lost all control of my mental capacity and my physical existence. And I just fell onto a table in this little tea house and started sobbing and shaking and realized that I had put myself in a situation that I didn't know if I was going to get out of. I really almost feared for my life because I was so in such a bad state. And there was this, uh, the lady who owned the tea house and she couldn't speak English either. And she would come up to me and try to offer me food and drinks and wanted me to go lay in a, in a bed and cover up with a blanket. And I literally couldn't speak. And, and my young porter, who I now refer to as Yujesh, which is translated into one who gives light. And he just sat in this tea house and looked at me for an hour, probably an hour and a half we sat in this tea house while I just sobbed and sh shaked. And he sat about 20 feet away from me in this little kitchen and didn't take his eyes off me. He sat there the whole time. And I was so concerned because he had been out in the mountain with me. He was freezing cold. He hadn't eaten anything. Eventually the, uh, the proprietor of the, of the lodge, the Sherpa lady, I called her, got me to stand up and come and sit in this kitchen with them. And if you can, 
kind of envision this little Sherpa hut. It was, there was no light. It was getting dark. The walls were covered in mud. There was this little stove that was burning yak dung. And there were three people, the Sherpa lady, her husband, and the Sherpa boy, Yujesh, sitting in this smoke-filled little mud hut talking in Nepalese. And I'm sitting with them thinking, you know, I'm sort of my element here. But they were looking after me as if I was family. And this Yujesh would sit by my side and not leave me. And eventually, I, the, the lady offered me some soup and I got... Um, re-energized and and Yujesh got up and pointed with his finger too, meaning we're two hours away from a doctor because there was a doctor halfway through the race that we had to check in with. So we got up and left and basically the rest of the race and the rest of the experience was this young kid staying with me and looking after me and keeping me from falling off the mountain and, and giving me the energy and the confidence to carry on. And, and then uh, we got to the finish line and I, I turned to give him a hug and he disappeared. You know, he just you know, kind of like when he appeared in my life, he faded away. And it was one of those experiences that I thought, you know, what, what did I just go through? You know, I just spent four or five hours of my life in the most extreme part of the planet doing something that is monumental. And I only really had the experience I did because of this kid who spent this part of his life with me and he'll never know what he meant to me. And and he just vanished at the finish line. He faded away. And then, uh, but then about a half hour later, there he was standing beside me again, not saying anything, just standing over my shoulder. He puts his hand on my shoulder and, and then he left again. And that was it. And, and I, I, I think about that kid. And then the next year they had the tragic avalanche and earthquake that decimated that whole area of the Kumbu Valley in Nepal. And I just think of this poor kid who was really just a nomad who went from village to village looking for work. And, and I think, you know, what happened to that poor guy? You, Josh, mm. does he still exist? Is he still helping people like me? And I'll never know, right? Unless I can go back and search for him. So, so that was the reason why I had to write the book. I had to write the story about this kid. And I originally entitled it just, um, uh, I think I called the book about a boy, which is the name of a movie, mm. but it was all about, this young kid that I called Yujesh and what he did in my life to make the most memorable experience in my life monumentally memorable. And, and that's really still the focus of, of the book is about this young man and my experiences in Nepal. But, and I thought if it's going to be a real book, I better add other stories as well. And that's kind of where it went from there. Well, when you, when I first heard you speak, you you talked about how I'm just an ordinary guy doing ordinary things, but experiencing extraordinary things, doing those mm -hmm. ordinary things. And I think one could argue that you might be doing extraordinary things as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in some of these races. But yeah, I think that is really, that's what life is all about is, is not missing those moments and, and really remembering them and, and honoring them as you have in your book. So are there any other stories you'd like to share with us? I could listen to you well, all day. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I do share stories with people, I mean, Everest is always the one I have to talk about. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but the other one that always has to get some airtime is my experience in Norway in this Tromsø sky race, my retirement gift that was foolish of me to do because it was a race that was completely out of my element. But um, again, it, it's one of those events just like Everest that has really changed my life. I mean, I thought I had reached a level of happiness and compassion and, you know, everything you want in a good life before I went to Norway. But after my experience in Norway, I realized that humans have the capacity to feel so much more and gain so much more from experiences. So in this particular experience, I, I went to Tromsø to this extreme isolated area in the far northern part of Norway. Beautiful rugged fjords like you can imagine Norway to be and it, it was a fascinating place to be. And by, by ultra marathon standards, not, not a grand race, 55 kilometers, um, which is long by many people's standards, but in the ultra world, it's not long, but that's the way these European sky races are. They're not long races. They're just very technical demanding races. So when I got to Tromso and I, I knew that the race was organized by Killian, who was my hero, he got me 
really enthusiastically into the sport as as he has for most people. I mean, he changed the world of ultra running and mountain running. And so I thought to get the chance to actually go to his personal race would be, you know, you can take any sport you want and pick your idol, right? And say, you know, I want to go and play a game of tennis with Serena Williams or play around a golf with Tiger Woods. And no one gets to do that, right? Ordinary people don't get to do that. But runners, you pick your spot and you can be side by side with these people. So when I was registering for the race on site that day, there was Killian sitting there as Killian always does. And he's just a regular guy. I mean, he is, he is a superstar by our standards, but in his own mind, he's just, he's me, right? He's just a runner. He just happens to be a better runner, right? But he is no different. So I, uh, you know, I didn't want to be starstruck or anything, but I thought I've got to take a moment and, and meet Killian. So I went and you know, says, can we have a chat? And can my wife take a picture? And of course, so he stood up and we chatted for probably half an hour about running in Canada and some of the common people we know through Canadian running circles. And, you know, the kind of guy that he could be anyone you meet on the trail, right? He's just a, just a great, simple guy, right? And we just talked about the the pleasures of mountain running and, so anyway, that, that got me excited about it, but I realized that the race was more than I should handle. Like it's got some really, really demanding parts, really technical running on ridges, really narrow ridge tops that uh, look extremely dangerous. And I was feeling all kinds of angst because I never told Sharon, my wife, how dangerous this was. She was used to my running experiences and she was with me early on in my life when I went to Nepal and she always said, you're never going to do that. Or you're never going to climb Mount Everest and risk your life and do these stupid things that mountain climbers do. And I said, no, I will never do that. You know, I love this mountain running, but I'll never, ever put my life in danger. I promise you that. But I always felt that I had maybe violated that with her, that by going into this race and I never was honest with her telling her how serious this thing was. And when I got out onto the course, I realized just, what a terrible mistake I'd made. I, I climbed up this ridge and then you reach this plateau and then you see this, it's, it's called the Hamperoken Ridge and Summit. And it is the most gnarly, exposed, challenging terrain you can ever imagine in a mountain world. And, and I realized that that's the route I had to take. And I was so unprepared and I just about threw up thinking that, what am I going to do? I didn't know at the time, but I knew something had happened. And as I alluded to at Lost Soul, that um, there's a terrible event that happened just 100 yards in front of me where this famous uh, American runner, Hillary Allen, fell off the ridge right in front of me and tumbled down 50 yards and almost died. And there was a, an emergency helicopter there rescuing her at the time that I was crossing this ridge. Oh and, I, and we were told that this person had fallen off the ridge just where you're going. And you, you go ahead, you know, have a, have a nice day. Just don't do what she did. And I'm like, hey, I'm a almost a 60-year-old man from Manitoba. She is one of the best mountain runners in the world. And she fell off the freaking mountain, you know, and you're expecting me to go across there. So anyway, there were only three of us left on the mountain at that time. Everyone else had dropped out of the race. And myself and a young man from the Netherlands and a, a French doctor. And we just looked at each other and said, are you okay with this? And we just basically embraced and said, let's do it. And and the three of us just kind of gingerly walked across this ridge and got to some points where I would not want anyone to experience what I did, but in another way, I would want every single person I know to experience what I did mm. because I was in a place where I was fearing for my life and never in a way that I would have, you know, sometimes you can think you're in, I don't know, like busy streets in a city or on a highway and you have a near miss or something and you thought, oh my gosh, you know, I almost had a tragic situation, but I put myself on top of a mountain that I had no place being. And I had to, it, it took every ounce of physical and emotional energy I had to make every single breath have one purpose. And that was to stay alive. And I had to do this for probably two hours on this mountain. And at the time, it was shocking to me how debilitating it was that I thought my next step and next breath could be my last. And I've got Sharon sitting back at the finish line waiting for me. And I told her I would never do this. And here I am, I've done it, right? I might be that Hillary at the bottom of the mountain there. But then something transformative happened to me and I just thought I'm not gonna let it happen. And fear is your worst enemy. That if you have fear on a mountain, then your body doesn't function. I thought I have to put fear aside. and. Mm -hmm. 
what was so empowering to me and something I like to share with people and, and hope people experience this in some way, not in a life and death situation where every breath you take and every single thing you do has one focus. And for me, that focus was survival. And it was amazing how the human body and the human mind were able to be in a symbiotic relationship where I was able to, to overcome this fear and I was able to move along the mountain. And, and I got through this one horrible, horrible place it's like standing on one of those little six inch ledges on a high rise building with your face against the wall and your back is, you know, 300 feet above and you have to just shimmy across this mountainside. And by the time I got off this and I was just, my heart was racing. And then I saw this figure running across the mountain. Like I am on all fours, you know, pretty much crying. And this person is running down the mountain, hopping and hopping. And I'm like, what is that? And sure enough, it's Killian Journey. There's Killian out on the mountain, you know, he's not back at his desk, you know, looking at finishing times or, you know, working with his sponsors or he's out on the mountain. He has his video camera and he's out documenting all his own runners. And he had just gone down to help rescue this person who had fallen off the mountain. And then he's up there with me and, and I'm just Killian, you, you have no idea. You're an angel, right? You have no idea what you're doing for me right now that I see what you do out on the mountains and what you do for people and just how humble you are. And it just re-energized me. And then, uh, so we kept going, but then of course reality struck and I found myself climbing up this vertical wall up to the summit of this, this Hamperoken summit. And again, I was at the point where I'm in a place that I shouldn't be in because I was literally freestyle rock climbing, no ropes, no nothing. And, you know, my hand was falling off rock and I was fear I was going to fall down. But so anyway, there's a lot of details about that, but I did survive. Um, and when I got back to the finish line and Sharon was there, she had no idea what I had just been through. And it was one of those moments that, yeah, it, it was one I'll never forget. I remember walking with her, the two guys that I was with, we got through this together and, and we had this massive hug, like we had been friends forever and they went on their way. And then I saw Sharon standing on a hill waiting for me and you know she's always so enthusiastic and she's up clapping for me. And I'm like, first of all, I didn't finish. I had to DNF because this took so much time, but, um, and she had no idea. And I just went over to her and, you know, and hugged her. And, you know, as I do, I get emotional at these races and it starts sobbing and she's, you know, what's wrong kind of thing. And I'm trying to express to her that, yeah, I, I, I kind of violated something sacred between us that, you know, I just put myself in a situation that I said I never would. And, you know, I got through it and I'm proud of that and thankful for that. And now that it's over, it's an experience that I won't trade for anything. But at the time, I, I just felt so terrible that she had no idea that I was doing something that she said and she thought that I would never do. And, and so I had to kind of open up to her and be honest and say, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, I did this and I will never do it again. And I kind of fallen back on that and have done a few things that I probably shouldn't. But uh, <laughs> But those kinds of experiences, it wasn't about the running event at all. It was about yeah. what I was experiencing yeah. psychologically that mm -hmm. that I carry with me. And every time I think of anyone who's struggling with anything, I just think, man, if I could only take that experience I had and give it to you and say, mm -hmm. you know, get through whatever you're struggling with, find a way to get through it, right? And because it's, it's the most incredible thing to to conquer fear and conquer heartache and conquer you know, these kind of what seemed to be overwhelming situations. And so, you know, what I found in my running life is it's so much more than running. And that's why I say it's, it's really an ordinary guy who really honestly does perform at an ordinary level, but it's these kinds of Everest and Tromso experiences that are extraordinary events that I would have never been able to do if I hadn't found trail running. So I, I owe, I owe so many great things in my life to this sport and, it's, it runs parallel with my relationship with my wife. It runs parallel with my students in my school that I, I just found that when I was doing these running events and experiencing these things that I would go to my school Monday morning and basically just fall in love with my students again and say, you guys are the greatest things to me because I get to share human relationships with you. And, and I just, they are on such a different level because of the other human relationships I've had out on the trail with, with other great people. So yeah, it, it, it's become a very big thing to me. 
Yes. Yes. And uh, like, I've just, you are an amazing storyteller. Like I just mm -hmm. cannot wait to know. read this book <laughs> because this whole entire time I've just been on the edge of my seat, like what happened mm. next? And my yeah. heart's racing and, and all of it. So, yeah. um, something we hear a lot from runners is like, they'll have been running for years and they'll be like, Oh, but I'm not really a real runner. It, like, have you ever heard people say that? Like they, mm -hmm. they run for so long, but still don't really identify yeah. as a runner. And so yeah. something that you said earlier on, like when you gave your mom the pamphlet mm -hmm. with that one little story and you're like, oh, it's not a book. Uh, I'm not an author. I'm not a writer. How did your mom react when you produced this real book? Mm. And do you feel like a real author now? Well, unfortunately, my mom passed away before I could produce this book. So I, I feel bad, but I know uh, she would be so proud of me. I mean, she, yeah. this kind of thing would have just put her over the moon. But um, no, I honestly don't consider myself to be an author or writer. I, I really do think of myself as a poser when it comes to this kind of thing. I mean, I was lucky that I had some good people around me to help me write this. And because I couldn't have done it on my own. And, and it's just there's so many parallels with running that, and I'm sure you know this too, and every race you're in, you can't do it alone. You always end up getting support from someone on the trail. And it's just like with my writing, I always had support from someone who knew more than I did and, mm -hmm. and could provide that kind of confidence that you can do it, right? You're out on the course. Right. I just did this race this, this last weekend and I was with someone and, and she was questioning herself and it's like, you can, and I was kind of her, guide right she was new to the sport and i'm more experienced and she was she had this time goal she didn't think she could make and you can do it you can do it you can do it and we ran together the whole day and she i was so proud of her and so happy for her that she had one of the best days of her life and and it was a team effort and that happens in every running event i mean i cannot honestly right. come up with a single exception where i haven't had this profound collaboration with someone on the trail so in my writing journey it was the same thing that I had great people with me that helped me craft it. And I, I, I still take a lot of pride in that the stories are mine and it's my voice, but I know I wouldn't have been able to do it. It wouldn't have been anywhere nearly as polished as it is without help from really good people who are much better at this than me. So, so I'm always cautious that I never want to promote myself, which is why I don't really promote my book very much because I don't want to put myself out there as an author. I would love to do stuff like this where the book allows me to share, sto share stories with people because I would much rather talk about the stories than have someone read them. Mm. But with the book in place, it, it gives me that vehicle, that, that jumping off point for being able to talk about it. So you know, I'm happy that it's out there and more people are seeing it and, and it makes me happy. So, Well, definitely we could probably have you talk for the next two or three hours and sit here spellbound. So if anybody wants to experience or read more stories, they can find them in your book. Yeah. We close each episode with five rapid fire questions, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, are you ready? Sure. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. All right. What is your favorite running mantra? Well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you first of all, and if you haven't got this from me already, that I don't really follow a script and I can kind of go off and mm -hmm. talk. So I'm, I'm going to go off the board on a lot of these and not give you kind of what might be standard responses. Um, thought if you uh -huh. have a podcast, you have a guest, you want something that maybe has a few nuggets in it, right? So when I was thinking of a mantra, I'm not one, I'm not philosophical. I honestly, I don't engage in that stuff at all. When I run, it's okay. just blah. And if I'm with a person on a trail, I love that, but I don't have mantras, but there are a couple that I've borrowed from other people. And one of them is run the mile you're in, right? Don't worry about what's happened in the past. Don't worry about the future. Just accept that you're in a race and you're doing something wonderful. Run the mile you're in. Another one from, I think it's Courtney DeWalter, who is amazing, says something like embrace the beast. You know, in a race, you're going to feel those that those moments when you're near death, right? But you know it's coming. So embrace it. And that's when the race really starts. I've had another one where uh, uh, an Everest, there was a runner from Brazil and I said, good luck to him. And he says, what are you talking about? Luck has nothing to do with it. If you're going to do this sport, it's all about preparation. So kind of the mantra is it's not luck, it's preparation. But I thought I'm going to go completely off the board on this. And I'm going to give you one that makes no sense right away. And it's, and it's this, and it's kiss your dog on its lips. So this is going to sound really weird, but I saw that my wife saw it on a bumper sticker and it said, I kiss my dog on her lips. And I thought, 
I have this dog and I love my dog. It's, it's just, she means so much to me. And, you know, whenever I embrace her, I kind of get a similar feeling like I embrace when I'm on the trail and, and I get close to her face and you can't help but snuggle your, if you're dog owners, you know, and, and you just give your dog this kiss on its lips. And it sounds weird, but I, I take that little credo and I convey, convey that to running that when you love something, whether it's a dog or your sport, you embrace it with all your passion and you do things that are maybe a bit out there. And with my dog, I love my dog. And it's this little thing that I say and that I think about that kiss your dog on its lips, because what it means is that you just love something so much, you give everything you have to it. And that's what I feel about running. I love it so much that I will give everything I have to the running event. So that's, that's my mantra, I guess. I love that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite place to run? Well, again, I could go on and on about this, but I'll stay local first of all. And, and as you've had with other guests like uh, Christian Andrews, who talks about this, um, the Brandon Hills are really, they are world-class. I mean, and I, I used to kind of exaggerate that a little bit, but, and I've been around to some pretty impressive places and there is nothing that compares to real trail running in the Brandon Hills. And, it, it's got everything a trail runner wants other than high altitude, right? But it's got everything and it, it's the most amazing experience. But if I'm going to pick one place locally, it's going to be right now in, in late September, October in this little area called Sewers Bend, which mm, is just south yeah. of Brandon. And it's, it's this, it is postcard wordy stuff. It is the most beautiful place on the planet. You drop down into this river valley and there's no one there except horses sometimes. And the fall colors are beyond out of this world. Um, so that's my local stuff. But I, I've got two other favorite runs I've had. One was in Iceland where I came off of a, a glacier. You're out on this snow-capped glacier for a couple of hours. And then within a few steps, you drop down into this valley that becomes brilliant green and purple and gold. And you've got geothermal, geothermal pools with steam rising out of them and a river down below you and a mountain in front of you. And you have about a half hour run in this race in Iceland that was in that you're coming down this, this hill off of ice into this lush valley. And it's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. And, uh, and then I, I can't let this segment go without talking about Nepal. And it wasn't the race, but these two dear friends of mine from Brazil, when we were trekking up to our starting point, we took one uh, excursion and went out completely off trail and, and just started running through the Himalayan mountains. And I'll probably remember that as my single most favorite running event ever is probably about a one hour run out in the middle of nowhere with the Himalayan mountains above me and being lost and not knowing if we'll ever get back to our tea house. So, so those are my favorites. Special. Yeah. Do you have a bucket list race still on your list? I expect well, you do. Yeah. Again, uh, if it's bucket list, then it, it has to be pretty unique, right? It has to be exceptional. So I think, you know, the, the default answer for me and many other people would be the big ones. You know, I'd love to get to Western States or do hard rock or do UTMB, but you know, they're popular races. I don't think there's anything exceptional about running the Western States course. It's a mountain course, right? So if I'm going to have a bucket list, bucket list race, then it has to be exceptional in terms of the race itself or the destination you go to. So I've got two things that are must do on my plate. One is getting to a race in Patagonia mm -hmm. down in the Southern hemisphere in Chile and Argentina. That's this one kind of complete remote place in the world that I want to go and run a race. Um, but ultimately if I had to kind of have one bucket experience, it won't be a race, but it'll be a running excursion. And I really do want to do this and that's go back to Iceland and do a self-supported cross-country run from the northern coast to the southern coast uh, across the interior of Iceland. So that's mm. that's on my list of things that I absolutely must do. My husband is not going to want to listen to this because I'm getting all these travel ideas <laughs> from your mm -hmm. suggestions, and they sound very expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's two the thing. of my you top to, two places. Yeah, yeah. In Iceland. I just fell in love with it, and. I'm hoping to go back this summer with my wife, Sharon, and we have friends from Sweden and, and go and do some exploring in the northern tip of Iceland. And that's where I want to start my run. And I, mm -hmm. what I'd like to do is uh, enlist the help of a, of a videographer to come with me and document it as a video and, and do a, 
you know, kind of a Netflix documentary of a self-supported run across Iceland and, and maybe write another book about it. So we'll wow, see. Why not? We'll see. Yeah. So ambitious you yeah. are. This is incredible. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? Uh, you know, there needs to be more running movies, don't you think? Like I, I've yeah. yet to find yes. a really good one. And, you know, the book that got me into this sport, this Born to Run, how come no one's made that a movie yet? And I assume, oh, are you guys right? both familiar with the book with this Cabal yes. Blanco? Oh, yeah. And For sure. oh, yeah. why yes. is that not a movie, right? But yeah. um, so movies, I don't really have any. But for books, the Born to Run is the ultimate one. But I, I mean, I know the people listening don't see this, but I'm showing you this cover. It's called Once a Runner. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, and it's so by John L. Parker. Uh, so if you know of it, it's it's kind of the ultimate running book, and it's it's a fiction book, but it's so inspirational about just the sport of running, and it's more competitive running in the college level. But there is a uh, what is it? There's a review in the book that goes something like the title of the book: "Once a runner is so inspiring, it should be banned as a performance-enhancing drug." <laughs> so if, if you read the book, it's, it's captivating. And I read it over and yes. over again. And then there's a sequel to it called Again to Carthage. But uh, yeah, if, if there's anyone getting into running and wants to get that jolt, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Find Once a Runner. That's it's the yes. Yeah. I, I have to agree. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mark. What is your favorite post-run or adventure indulgence? Okay. So... As with most runners, I'm sure beer, pizza, burgers are your most frequent answers. And they are for me too. I mean, there's nothing like a cold beer after days. That is my first thing I'll absolutely have. But my appetite generally is suppressed after a run. So I don't have this real need to eat. But if I have a choice, and this is, I just ran a race this just two days ago. And now what my default post-run indulgence is, if I'm at home or at my daughter's place, it's a craft dinner and apple pie. So, oh, wow. yeah, that's what <laughs> it is. And, food. And that's unique. That combination just does it for me. So uh, the night before my race, I made an apple pie and I loaded it up with twice as much sugar and cinnamon and butter as you could possibly ever have. And then I knew the next day I was going to eat half of this apple pie. And I told my <laughs> wife, Sharon, I'm making this pie. So don't eat anything on race day because when I get home, we're eating this apple pie. Right. And, uh, so yeah, it's a pot of craft dinner, which I eat once a year. Right. When it's a race yeah. at home or twice a year. Uh -huh. Okay. And an apple pie. So yeah. that's it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. great. Yeah. That's so great. So um, thank you, Mark, for coming on the podcast. This mm -hmm. has been just an awesome conversation. The book is called Man on the Run. You can pick it up, you know, at the bookseller in mm -hmm. uh, Brandon, ideally, mm -hmm. but any place books are sold or where, where else would you send us? The, the one place I missed that I really want to highlight, which you're associated with, is Manitoba Association of Trail Runners Matter, matr.ca. Mm -hmm. That uh, I have donated books to them where profits go back into the organization. And uh, if anyone <clears throat> is local and wants to purchase a book, of course, go to the retail outlets, City Park Runners in Winnipeg, Wilderness Supply, or Brandon and El Cycle. But other than that, go onto the Matter website, um, buy the book from them. And uh, profits go back into matter to keep this trail running experience alive for all of us. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure chatting yeah, with you. Yeah, well, same with me too. Thanks again for having me on. And I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. You guys do a great job. So keep it up. 